0: This is Fresh Air. I'm David Bianculli of TVWorthWatching.com, sitting in for Terry Gross. Over the past year, Terry has spoken with all five movie directors who are up for Academy Awards this weekend. So on the eve of the Oscars, we thought we'd condense those conversations into a one-stop visit with all five Best Director nominees. Quentin Tarantino, Catherine Bigelow, Jason Reitman, Lee Daniels, and our first guest, James Cameron. James Cameron has directed what are considered, by some measures, the two highest-grossing films of all time, the 1997 film Titanic and, of course, his latest film, Avatar. Avatar has made over $2.3 billion and has received nine Oscar nominations, including Best Picture and Best Director. Avatar stars Sam Worthington as Jake Sully, an injured Marine who is now in a wheelchair. He takes a job with a military contractor to work on the planet Pandora, where the company is trying to extract a precious ore. But the natives on the planet, the Navi tribe, are getting in the way. Jake's job is to be an avatar, to take the form of one of the Navi and infiltrate them, both for anthropological information and to try to get them out of the way. In this scene, he's reluctantly recording one of his first video logs about starting to learn the Navi ways
1: this is video log 12 times 21 32 do i have to do this now like i really need to get some rack
0: no now when it's fresh
1: okay location shack and the days are starting to blur together the language is a pain but you know i figure it's like field stripping a weapon just repetition repetition Navi.
2: Nadi,
1: Naughty.
3: Naughty.
1: Naughty. do stronger? <laughs> calls me scowl. It means moron.
4: Jim Cameron, welcome to Fresh Air. Can I ask but, you to give us an example of a shot or two or a scene that epitomizes for you what you can do with 3D that you couldn't do? In a regular film,
2: well, I think it's sometimes as simple as as you know a shot in a snowstorm uh, would feel so much more tactile to the viewer you 'd actually feel like the the snowflakes were falling on you and around you, you know that sort of thing any time that the the medium of the of the air between you and the and the subject can be filled with something, so we did a lot of stuff in Avatar with. With you know floating wood sprites and little bits of of stuff floating in the in the sunlight and so on and and rain and and uh, foreground leaves and things like that it 's all a way of wrapping the audience in the experience of the movie
4: and there 's even a shot, and I think this looked deeper because of the three d but you tell me there 's a shot in which the um, uh, the the spaceship that 's transporting the people to pandora it's it 's a shot of like a long narrow Bench, basically, of, of of seats, like a row of seats that the guys are sitting on. And I think it looked particularly long because of the 3D, or is that just me? <laughs> no,
2: I think you're right. I think it's an enhanced sense of depth. We get depth cueing in flat images all the time. We, we understand perspective, uh, you know, linear perspective, aerial perspective. When we see um, um, a, a fit human figure and that figure is very tiny, we don't – our brain immediately says that's not a tiny guy an inch tall. That's somebody very far away. So all those depth cues are always there. When you add what uh, 3D does, 3D gives you parallax information. It actually gives you the difference between what the left eye sees and what the right eye sees. And that creates even more depth information. So now all these different depth cues have to be correlated in the brain in in the space of a few microseconds when you first see the image. And, And I would submit, although I haven't seen data on this, that the brain is more active. The brain is more engaged in the processing of the images.
4: Didn't you help develop like a special new virtual camera?
2: Mm, yeah, but that's a whole different deal. What, that what, has what is to, it? That has nothing to do with 3D. Uh, the virtual camera was a way of interfacing with a, with a CG world so that I could, I could view my actors as their characters when, when we were doing performance capture. So imagine here's Zoe Saldana or Sam Worthington in our capture space, which we called the volume. And when you look at them, they're wearing kind of a, a black a black outfit, which is their capture suit. Uh, but what I look at and what I see in my, my virtual camera monitor is an image of them as a ten foot tall blue alien creature with a tail.
4: Wow, that's and, and it's in real time. <laughs> that's kind of amazing. So there's like yeah, a computer. There's like a computer, a CG computer, in the camera that transforms the image
2: yeah more or less the camera the camera really is just a monitor and, and a set of uh, a set of tracking markers, and it connects to uh, a couple of computers actually the first one takes in that that tracking data and figures out where the camera is in space relative to the actors and then the second computer takes that that information about the about the the characters and where they are and turns them uh, the actors and where they are and turns them into their characters and uh, supplies the setting so I would see Zoe and Sam as uh, Nateria and Jake in the jungle of Pandora, for example, you know, fully lit image of the Pandoran rainforest. The, you know, it's not the, the same as the final image of the movie in the sense that it's a much lower resolution so it can render in real time.
4: Let's talk about the characters a little bit. And sure. Let me tell you one of the first things that strikes me about the heroine. Now, in comics and in pulps, and I, I know you're big fans of those, Mm -hmm. The women were always curvaceous and buxom and, of course, scantily clad. Of course. That's a given. (laughs) That's a given. (laughs) Now, the heroine in Avatar is so skinny. I mean, all the characters are. All of the characters in this imaginary uh, movie, they're all kind of elongated and very thin. And, and so, so she's elongated and very thin with, like, little breasts <laughs> and scantily clad. Um,
2: Athletic breasts. <laughs> something that wouldn't be cumbersome when you're running through the forest <laughs> rapidly in so, pursuit of your prey.
4: I, so I'm wondering about that decision because I think that must say something. I'm not sure what it says, but I figure it must say something about people's expectations of sexuality or athleticism mm-hmm. now and, like, mm-hmm. you know, female heroine and also— what, I mean, a lot of action and fantasy films are directed at young males. And young males usually want to yeah. see that full-figured buxom, you know.
3: Yeah, so so, know. so talk
4: to me a little but... bit about designing her and how that compares to, like, the female sci-fi comic heroines you grew up with. Yeah,
2: I mean, your typical, your typical comic heroine is, you know, is quite voluptuous. You know, we were just looking for something that was a little bit alien and so you know i use the example of uh, you know giacometti sculpture you know where you have these mm-hmm. these kind of vertically attenuated figures and then relating it back to some you know tribal cultures in africa like the like the masai uh you know herders who were you know very very tall and and lean and quite beautiful and you could see the their their muscular very very clearly defined and you know it was a way of having them be human and slightly pushed at the same time because for me, the Navi always were about um, an expression of of kind of the, the better part of ourselves. Um, in the sense of them being, you know, kind of the almost the Rousseau model of the noble savage, uh, untainted by civilization, and all that, which is a quite romantic idea, and not one I think is really true, by the way, in in the in the real world. But it it made sense to me that in this film you've got this polarization where the humans actually rent, represent an aspect of human nature. Uh, that is, you know, venal and corrupt and uh, aggressive and so on. And and the, the Navi represent an aspect of human nature that is more aspirational for us. They're more the way we would see ourselves or or, or want to be. Uh, you know, they're athletic, they're graceful, they're they're uh, you know connected to their environment and to each other and and so on. You know, so I didn't ma- want to make them these fat waddlers, kind of crashing through the. The bush I wanted them to to suggest a kind of um antelope like grace
3: you had
4: to make up a language also mm-hmm, I think with the help mm-hmm. of a linguist um, yeah, what were you looking for in the language, and how do you put together a kind of um grammatically uh coherent language
2: mm mm-hmm, mm-hmm. no that's well that 's where where uh, the linguist uh, dr Paul fromer came in and he was the, the head of the linguistics department at USC uh, at the time and he did more than help. He actually created the language or, or more properly, he created the translations of the lines that we needed to uh, for the script. I don't think he didn't create like a full language with a vocabulary of 20,000 words. But I think we now have a vocabulary of about 1,200 or 1,300 words. And I actually had him on set with me, so that if the actors wanted to improvise, they could go over to him and say, "How would I say this? How would I say that?" Sometimes he had to create words right on the spot, but they had to be words that were consistent with the with the uh, kind of uh, sound system that we were using for the language and I guess I sort of set it in motion when I created character names and place names and based them on some you know kind of Polynesian sounds and some uh, some Indonesian sounds and uh, he he riffed on that, and he brought in some uh, some African sounds that were uh, ejective consonants and things like that, kind of clicks and pops, and he sprinkled those in and he came up with a syntax and a typical sentence structure, which I think has the verb at the end, kind of in the German sentence structure you know "I to the store go it 's noun object verb, uh, so I think that 's how navi is uh, is structured, so it follows linguistic rules. And that's why it sounds correct. And, and all the actors had to adhere to a standard of, of pronunciation so that it didn't sound like everybody was making up their own gobbledygook, which I think over a two-and-a-half-hour movie, you would have felt you were being had if, they, if we had done it that way.
4: So can you speak to me in, um, in the Navi language?
2: Uh, you know, I mean, I can only say lines that are in the film. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> I can say, well, ngati kamea masmokan means uh, I see you, my sister. No, I see you, my brother. Mas Moké is (laughs) is, I see you, my sister. Or, uh, well, Potspimiang, the Kursalongia, the Ewa. means I was going to kill him, but there was a sign from Ewa.
4: One more question. A lot of people have noted that uh, your film is up against The Hurt Locker for an mm-hmm. Oscar. And The Hurt Locker was directed by Catherine Bigelow, who you, you were once married to. And I think she she gave you a copy of the screenplay to look at, even though you yeah, had long yeah. separated, because she w- wanted your opinion on it. So this is a, like a big media story that, you know, spouses yeah, up against each other at Oscars. So what, what does that mean to you?
2: Well, I think it I think it completely trivializes our relationship to to reduce us to exes. You know, we were we were married for almost 2 years 20 years ago and since then we've been colleagues and collaborators and close friends for 20 years. And I've produced two of her films and, you know, I've always sort of uh, you know, steadfastly promoted her her career as a as a director you know when i when i was actually acting as her producer and and subsequently not that she in recent years has has really needed any help she's you know definitely definitely been well established and the the accolades that she's getting now uh you know uh, in this in this award season and the critical recognition and so on is for one way overdue for two it's such a great celebration of of her accomplishments as a filmmaker that you know i'm the first one to cheer when she wins an award. Uh, for me, it's a, it's a win-win situation.
0: James Cameron, speaking with Terry Gross last month. Coming up...
1: What's the best way to, to go about disarming one of these things? The way you don't die, sir. <laughs> That's a
0: good one. We'll hear from the director of The Hurt Locker, Catherine Bigelow. This is Fresh Air. Our next Best Director Oscar interview is with Catherine Bigelow, director of The Hurt Locker. It's about an army bomb squad in Iraq. Terry spoke with Catherine Bigelow and with the movie screenwriter, Mark Bull, who's also up for an Academy Award. The Hurt Locker, based on Bull's reporting from Iraq, stars Jeremy Renner as a sergeant who's just taken over the team. He is fearless and brilliant at defusing bombs, but often recklessly risks his life and the lives of his men. In this scene, Renner and one of his sharpshooters, played by Anthony Mackie, are in Renner's room. Mackey pulls out a box from under Renner's bed. A box filled with fuses, wires, and other remnants of bombs Renner has diffused.
3: What do we have
2: here?
5: They're, uh, you know, bomb parts, signatures. Yeah, yeah, I see that, but what are they doing under your bed?
1: Well... Uh-huh. This one. This one. It's from the U.N. building. Flaming car. Dead man's Boom. This guy was good. I like him. This one, y'all, is from our first call together. This box is full of stuff that almost killed me. What about this one? Where's this one from, Will? It's my wedding ring. Like I said, stuff that almost killed me. <laughs>
4: <laughs> Catherine Bigelow, Mark Bowl, welcome to Fresh Air. Catherine, the first um, IED that we see go off... Um, is in, it's close to the uh, beginning of the film. And it's a really horrifying moment. I mean, you basically see, and I think you, you shot this part of this in slow motion, you basically see the pavement lift up and fragment and fly into the air. Um, can you talk a little bit about shooting that scene and making it have real impact? And by that I mean it's not special effects impact. There's so many movies where things are always blowing up and it's visually dazzling, but you don't necessarily feel anything. You're just thinking like, wow, pretty cool, stuff blowing up, big special effects. But this, you really feel the threat and the impact and the danger and the horror.
3: Well, I wanted to really put the viewer at the epicenter of the event and, you know, really feel that horror. And we shot the movie in the Middle East. We shot it in Amman, Jordan. That particular location happened to have been in a very densely populated area. In fact, it was near a customs house and there was something like 200,000 cars that traveled through that area on a daily basis, although we did shut that part of the city down temporarily. But it was a very densely populated area, and we knew that had to be a form and type of detonation that was very palpable. We were very interested in trying to replicate it as realistically as possible. It's In, in the case of a 155, which was the particular ordinance in the middle of the road, it was meant to have a very dark, dense, thick uh, look that... Um, was very different than those kind of gaseous orange plumes of kind of fuel that perhaps maybe is more conventional in films. Anyway, so we we performed this detonation, and the effects man, Richard Stutzman, did an extraordinary job, but it was a, a very, very large, I think you could see it for, it was like a four-story high explosion that you could see for, the, you know, miles and miles. And, and uh, I used something called a phantom camera, which shoots 10,000 frames per second, you know, to kind of look at the, granular nature of a detonation of that size.
4: Mark, when you were embedded with a, a bomb squad in Iraq, how close did you get to any of the explosions?
5: Well, I got, you know, I, when, when you're embedded, unfortunately or fortunately, you're just sort of right there with the soldiers. So I was as close as the soldiers would be. And, it, you know, it, it depended. If they were a mile away, I was a mile away. If they were 100 yards away, I was 100 yards away. And, um Close enough that you can feel the heat of of the explosion, which is really quite impressive and intensive. It's almost like someone's taking a hairdryer and spraying it in your face. And obviously close enough that the shrapnel is whizzing by around you and and you know, it's very loud and percussive. It's like being in a rock concert.
4: And d- does the Bomb Squad team have a pretty decent idea of what the range of the blast will be if the blast goes off so that they know what the safety zone is?
5: They do. They're, they're kind of... Uh, they have a very keen sense of that, actually, and their 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 whole expertise in terms of the physics of it is, is quite extraordinary and impressive. I mean, these are guys that are actually trained to diffuse nuclear bombs. So for them to calculate the physical blast radius of an IED is something they can do. It's the kind of math they can do in their head very quickly. And uh, so they can tell you with a pretty high degree of certainty where the blast is going to is going to go and what the impact will be on a given structure, whether it'll take down a house or put a hole in a house or whatever. But again, that's assuming that they know exactly what the content of the bomb is, and some of the time they don't really know.
4: Um, Catherine, one of the things that uh, made an impression on me in the movie is that occasionally there'd be like a stray feral cat walking across the street or down the street. and Like one of the cats has only three functioning legs, and one of the cats just looks... Have to like starve to death and uh and unhealthy and kind of afraid um and I was wondering like whether you cast these cats <laughs> or whether these were like stray cats that you 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 found or or that were actually happened to be walking down the street
3: uh in all honesty, they happened to be walking down the street kind of the bonus of of shooting in situ in in a environment it was in an area that was sort of, uh, I suppose, kind of down market, uh, shall we say. And so it's a matter of always keeping your camera department alive and looking in all directions just in case there might be some surprise, a a beautiful woman up on a balcony, head shrouded in cloth, looking down, gazing down on you, and just trying to be very sensitive to the environment in which you're in.
4: You know, one of the things... um I got the impression of from your movie is that your, your movie is in part about men who have no talent for ordinary life, for life on the home front, for ordinary family life, that something is stirred in them being on the front lines, being in danger, being in a bomb squad, you know, that kind of work. But at the same time, you reach a point where you can't take that anymore either, and then what are you left with? Um, and I guess I, I'd just be interested in in some of the thoughts you had during the making of the movie about people for whom ordinary life isn't isn't enough, isn't isn't pleasurable or fulfilling in any way.
3: Well, I don't know if you're familiar with um, Chris Hedges' book War is a Force That Gives Us Meaning. Yes. It's a pretty extraordinary piece of writing, and he discusses that very fact, a sense of purpose and meaning that uh, moments of peak experience can provide. in this case, we're obviously referencing combat and it could come with you know race car driving or again moments of peak experience that once um, you know once that captures your imagination, it's a very difficult, feeling, sensation, emotional peak to replicate other than in that context.
0: Director Catherine Bigelow and screenwriter Mark Bull, speaking to Terry Gross. They're both up for Oscars this weekend, as are the three directors featured in the second half of our show. I'm David Bianculli, and this is Fresh Air. I'm David Cooley sitting in for Terry Gross. Like James Cameron and Catherine Bigelow, Quentin Tarantino earned his newest Oscar nomination by directing a film about war. But instead of the battlefield of an imaginary world or a very current real one, Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards takes place during the Nazi occupation of France during World War II, with a scenario that takes some very bold liberties with actual history. Terry spoke with Quentin Tarantino last summer. The film follows a team of American soldiers hunting down Nazis. The Germans will come to call this group the Bastards. They are led by Lieutenant Aldo Raine. Played by Brad Pitt.
1: My name is Lieutenant Aldo Rain, and I'm putting together a special team, and I need me eight soldiers. Eight Jewish American soldiers. Now, y'all might have heard rumors about the Armada happening soon. Well, we'll be leaving a little earlier. We're gonna be dropped into France dressed as civilians. Once we're in enemy territory, as a bushwhacking guerrilla army, we're going to be doing one thing and one thing only, killing Nazis. Sound good?
2: Yes, sir!
4: Quentin Tarantino, welcome to Fresh Air. So in this team of of Jewish soldiers that the Brad Pitt character, Lieutenant Aldo Rain, puts together... Um, he, he, he tells them that he's got a little engine in him, that he's part Apache, and that mm-hmm. their battle plan will be the battle plan of Apache's, that they're going yeah. to scare their enemies. Um, mm-hmm. He says the Germans will be sickened by us and the Germans will talk about us and the Germans will fear us. And when the Germans close their eyes at night and their subconscious tortures them for the evil they've done, it will be thoughts of us that it tortures them with. And he explains to these to these. Jewish soldiers that they have to scalp the Nazis when they get them, and he insists that they each bring back a hundred scalps each or, or die trying. Um, how did you come up with the idea of scalping <laughs> <laughs> of the Jews scalping the Nazis that they hunt down again it 's this hybrid of world war Two and and, and yeah. westerns but but why that
6: well I, it hit me that uh, an Apache resistance would be a, a wonderful metaphor for Jewish American soldiers to be using behind enemy lines against the Nazis because of um, the Apache Indians were able from different points of time between having 200 braves to 22 braves were able to fight off for decades both the Spaniards and the Mexicans and the US cavalry for years because of their resi- they were great guerrilla fighters they were great uh resistance fighters. And one of their ways of winning battles was uh, psychological battles. They never did straight up fights. It wasn't about, you know, getting killed in the line of fire. It was all ambush, ambush, ambush. And then you, you take the scalps and you, even though the scalping wasn't created by the American Indians, it was it was created by the white men against Indians and they just took it and claimed it. But uh, they would, you know, scalp them and desecrate the bodies, you know, tie them to cactuses or bury them in anthills or things like that. And, uh, you know, cut up the bodies and stuff. And then... The other enemy soldiers would come across and find their comrades laying there ripped apart, and they would be sickened by it, and it would scare them. It would psychologically get into their heads, so much so that if you're a U.S. Cavalry guy and you thought you were going to be captured by the Apaches, you might kill yourself. If they were with their wives and they thought they were going to be captured, they would shoot their wives for fear of the Apaches getting them.
4: You're part Cherokee. Did you identify Mm -hmm. with the Indians when you watched Westerns?
6: Oh, yeah. No, completely. I always did. Yeah, I was always uh, – I remember, like, literally saying, uh, watching some cowboy and Indian movie with my mother. And I go, so if we were back then, we'd be the Indians, right? And <laughs> she goes, yeah, that's who we'd be. We, we wouldn't be those guys in the covered wagons. We'd be the Indians. Um, but the idea of using the Apache resistance, one, it works effective to actually get German soldiers to think of Jews that way. You know, And they're not just any Jews. They're the American Jews. They're, they're, they're Jews with entitlement. You know, they have the strongest nation in the world behind them. So we're going to inflict pain where our European aunts and uncles had to endure it. And so the fact that you could get, actually get Nazis scared of a band of Jews, that's again, that's a gigantic psychological thing. The other thing is even the Jews in the course, even though metaphorically aligning themselves with Indians. And, uh, you know, you have genocide aligning itself with another genocide.
4: And Glorious Bastards is so much about movies. It's about the genres that you're using. It's it's about a movie theater plays a prominent role in Mm -hmm. it, movies themselves. I don't want to give away a lot, so I'm going to talk Mm -hmm. in code here. (laughs) But um, (laughs) movies are in some ways the hero of the film. But it's also about how Hitler perverted movies and how his mm-hmm. propaganda man Joseph Goebbels perverted movies by making these these propaganda films. Did you go and watch German propaganda films while you were making *Inglorious mm-hmm. Bastards*?
6: Uh, yeah, I watched uh, uh, I watched a few of them. Oddly enough, it's uh, most of the books written about the subject aren't very good because they just focus in on the more hateful movies that they did very early, early on when they were trying to, you know, get Germany into the war. Whether it be anti-Semitic movies like Jude Sus or The Eternal Jew or movies made against uh, the Polish to help, you know, create sympathy for them to invade Poland. And, you know, there'd be movies where like, there'd be some German girl living in Poland who's raped by the Polish or something. Uh, and then they make movies against England, you know, in the same way to help, you know, feather their nest for what they, their, their aggressions but truth of the matter is that was fairly fairly early on in um gerbel's 800 movies uh that he that he made in, uh, made in germany the majority of them especially once the war got going um you hardly saw nazi officers in the, in it at all they were mostly musicals comedies and melodramas and stories of great german men from the past uh you know, if you want to see jackbooting Nazis in movies, you've got to watch American movies made at
4: that time. <laughs> That's funny.
6: Uh, yeah, though, I mean, well, well there were also the Lenny
4: Riefenstahl films.
6: Yeah, well, well again, yeah, but the, the Gerbils had nothing to do with those. Lenny Riefenstahl was the one person Gerbils had no control over mm-hmm. in uh, the filmmaking community of Nazi Germany, and they despised each other. But because she was Hitler's favorite, she could do what she wanted. She was the only filmmaker that did not have to cow down to, uh, to Joseph Gerbils. But even then, you know, the, that was all before the war. Her movies, Olympia and Triumph of Will, were made before you know, America even got into the war.
4: Can I ask you a casting question about Inglorious Bastards? Sure. The casting is great, but what's a person who is just like brand new to me and I think most American viewers and is like super extraordinary in it is Christoph Waltz, who mm-hmm. plays the quote Jew Hunter, the person who's <laughs> sent by the Gestapo to find the last remaining Jews hiding out in the countryside of France. And um, this is an actor who speaks three languages very well in the movie. He plays this Jew hunter, this Nazi, as somebody who, like a lot of mobsters are portrayed in movies, who on the surface mm-hmm. is like very polite and gracious and complimentary. And you know he's just like taking your measure so he can totally undo you and probably kill you or mm-hmm. or whatever it is. Um, and and he's very kind of like neat and organized and he, when he's at the farmhouse looking for the Jews who he suspects are hiding he takes out his mm-hmm. papers and he fills his fountain pen very neatly and everything's done with a mm-hmm. little flourish how did you find this actor Christoph Waltz who is so splendid in this what what was your audition like for him how did you know you'd found your man
6: well you know it was it was wild because um i had seen already like a few different German actors for this part and was not finding my Landa at all. Um, And part of the problem was, well, obviously they could speak German well. (laughs) Um, And most actually German actors have like some speaking of French. So the French wasn't the problem. But uh, I was having a problem with them doing my dialogue in English. And it wasn't a matter of fluency. You know, uh, a lot of them could come in and we could speak for the next nine hours in English and there would be no problem. It was – English wasn't, wasn't the language for them to read poetry in. And there is a, there's a poetic quality to my dialogue. It's not poetry, but it's kind of like it. It's not song lyrics – but it's kind of like song lyrics. It's not rap, but it's kind of like rap, and it's not stand-up comedy, but it is kind of like stand-up comedy. It's all those things together, and you have to be able to sell my jokes. And if you're talking about somebody like Sam Jackson, they do that. Christopher Walken can do it, and a lot of people can do it, all right? Sam is probably, like, the most famous for it. And when it came to a lot of these German actors with the English, they just couldn't do it. They couldn't get the poetry out of it. They couldn't own it and make it their own. And uh, they were they were too busy. They were struggling with it. And then Christoph came in, and I didn't know who Christoph was. He's a TV actor in Germany. Uh, he does like miniseries and stuff. He came in, and I can literally say, halfway through the reading of that first scene in the farmhouse, I knew I'd found my Londa. Quentin Tarantino
0: speaking to Terry Gross. Coming up, a talk with Lee Daniels, director of the movie Precious. This is Fresh Air. Our next guest in this Best Director Oscar Fest is Lee Daniels, who directed the movie Precious. Set in Harlem in 1987, it's about a 350-pound, illiterate, 16-year-old African-American girl who is physically abused by her mother and impregnated more than once by her own father. Newcomer Gabourey Sidibe plays the young girl Precious, and in this scene, Precious is visiting her welfare caseworker, played by Mariah Carey.
6: You don't even like me. Have we not been in this room together for like a year discussing your life? Does that mean we like each other because we discuss my life? I can't speak for you. I can only speak for me.
1: And I do like you. I do. So are you Italian? Or what color are you? And are you some type of black or Spanish? What color
6: do you think I
1: am? Now I'd like to know what color do you think I am.
3: My throat is dry.
6: Your throat is dry.
3: It's really hot in here. It is kind of hot
4: in here.
1: I'm gonna go get a soda.
4: Lee Daniels, welcome to Fresh Air. Let me agree with everybody who says that Gabrielle Sidibe, who plays Precious, um, really does uh, an extraordinary job, and she 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 wasn't a professional actress. Um, how did you put out the call? I mean, did you have a casting call for three hundred fifty pound teenagers? I mean, how did how did, how did you find her?
1: <laughs> I, I called an agent in Hollywood and said, "Listen, uh, can you help me? I'm looking for a three hundred fifty five pound black girl." And he just there was silence on the phone, and I realized at that point, okay, well here we go. I gotta attack this from a completely different uh, way of uh, that I ordinarily attack. the casting process and that meant work a lot of work and but my brilliant casting director billy hopkins and uh my sister in los angeles leah daniels butler began a search for the girl and uh, they had to have seen at least a thousand uh girls and uh we actually narrowed it down to like 20 girls these girls were in a precious camp where they were dancing And these girls were... It was like a precious
4: training camp you were talking about. Yeah. Uh Yeah, they
1: were dancing. They were having acting lessons. I had a vocal instructor. And it was so beautiful watching these girls who I'd find at McDonald's. or we flew in from, you know, um, a radio shack in Chicago. Wait, wait, wait. wait, let's, Let's
4: stop right there. So you'd go up to somebody at McDonald's and and mm-hmm. say well they look heavy <laughs> they they mm-hmm. look they look fat and maybe talented i will go up to them i mean yeah, yeah.
1: I, they 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 immediately it was not as easy as you would think you know they were very guarded it wasn't easy coasting these girls into the two times that i did it uh once was at the um uh, at a theater the girls serving behind the counter you know the, the movie theater and the other one was at a mcdonald's and uh, it was not um you know, it was not easy. But uh so anyway, they did this uh and then they put out open calls, which was really a good thing too. They um had a, you know, put posters out in schools and stuff and around the country and so anyway, we had these twenty girls narrowed down. They were the real girls. These girls really were, you know, they had problems speaking and their diction and Gabby came in, it was a great audition, and then when I meant to meet her, she started talking like this white girl from the valley. And I just thought, my God, this is, how, who are you? And uh, I realized at that moment, if I had used um, one of the girls that was really precious, that I would have been exploiting them. It, I would have made a mockery of precious. So this girl is not precious. And so she's, you know, she she has a different life. And she's, a, though she's from Harlem, she's very worldly. And really have a a sense of self-confidence that either, I don't know, I've never seen anything like it before. In my life, she is um, truly, you know, either in denial about her physicality or she's on a higher plane. I know she's got several boyfriends. Um, She's so secure with who she is that it's mind-blowing.
4: You also got a terrific performance out of Monique, who's best known as a, as a comic and uh, and talk show host. She mm-hmm. plays the mother, the very emotionally and physically abusive mother. Before we talk about her performance, let me play a short scene. And this is a scene, um, Precious and the social worker are, are in the office. Precious has explained to the social worker, the Mariah Carey character, about the abuse that she suffered at the hands of her father and her mother and uh, the social worker has called in the mother because the mother insists that she wants Precious and Precious's new baby to move back in. And of course, Precious doesn't wanna do that. So here's the scene where uh, the social worker played by Mariah Carey and the mother, Mary, played by Monique, are talking with each other.
6: You've been calling this office saying you wanna be reunited with Precious and your grandchild. Now I really need to know what's
1: going on in that home. Miss Wise. I understand we need to discuss it, but I'm just telling you, you said I've been calling here and I've been wanting to see Precious and my grandson. You got them right I want to see him because they belong to me, okay? Now there was a time Precious had everything and I done told her that. And me and Carl, we love Precious. And you need to know that. We love Precious and we had dreams. Precious was born around the same time Miss West's son got killed. The summertime. She was born. The summertime. Remember? Remember that? I was born in November. November. Yeah.
4: That's right. How did you know that Monique could pull that off?
1: Mm. We're very good friends. And I'd already worked with her before in Shadow Shadowboxer. And uh, through that friendship, uh, you know, Precious came along. And though in the book, Precious's mom, Mary, is actually bigger than uh, Precious. And it's sort of the reverse in the film. I knew that Monique would tear it out.
0: Lee Daniels, director of Precious. Coming up... To know me is to fly with me.
2: This is where I live. run my card, the system automatically prompts the desk clerk to greet me with this exact statement.
3: Pleasure to see you again, Mr. Bingham.
2: We'll hear from
0: Jason Reitman, the director of Up in the Air, after a break. This is Fresh Air. Our final guest in today's Best Director Oscar Fest is Jason Reitman, nominated for his movie adaptation of Walter Kern's book, Up in the Air. Terry spoke with Jason Reitman last year. The movie stars George Clooney as Ryan Bingham a man who gets hired by corporations to deliver the bad news to employees who are about to be laid off. This potentially depressing job requires lots of travel, but rather than being depressed by that too, Ryan loves to fly. And he loves especially to rack up frequent flyer miles and all the perks that come with them. His goal in the film is to pass the 10 million mile mark. In this scene, George Clooney as Ryan is at a hotel bar, flirting with a fellow business traveler played by Vera Farmiga. They're comparing their elite status cards from airlines, hotels, and car rental agencies.
2: Right.
1: Oh, Maplewood card. How dare you bring that into this palace?
3: Hilton offers equal value and better food, but the Maplewood gives that one cookies at check in. What
1: well, do they got to do with the
2: cookies? Do
3: they? I'm a sucker for simulated hospitality.
2: Yeah, there's an industry term for that. It's a mixture of uh, faux and homie foamy
3: oh my god i wasn't sure if this actually existed this is the uh, the american airlines yeah, it's a uh, concierge key yeah what is that carbon fiber graphite oh i love the weight
2: i was pretty excited today that bad boy came in
3: yeah i'll say i put up pretty pedestrian numbers like 60 a year domestic it's not bad don't patronize me What's your total? That's a personal question. Oh, please. No, we hardly know each oh, other. come on, show some hubris. Come on, impress me. <laughs> oh, I bet it's huge. You have no idea. Jason Reitman,
4: welcome back to Fresh Air. There's a scene at the beginning of the film that I really love. It's the first time uh, George Clooney is at the airport. And he goes through the whole ritual. And you photograph it so ritualistically, the collapsing of the handle on the carry-on luggage so it could be put on the... Uh, you know, security conveyor belt and then, you know, slipping off of his shoes, putting them in a little box, putting his shoes back on. Can you talk about shooting that to get a ritualistic flavor from it?
7: Well, certainly. I choreographed all of the way that George packed his luggage and the way he went through security. I was very specific about the kind of Tetris of how that all works. And we were the first movie to ever shoot in the real TSA. Normally, if you see a film that has a scene of a person going through a security checkpoint. They just threw up a metal detector in a hotel hallway or at a convention center hallway. And we were the first film to be allowed to shoot in the real thing. It was actually very tricky to shoot. I choreographed um, every single shot. I storyboarded it out. We went out to the uh, security checkpoint at Lambert Field in St. Louis. And we did a trial run where I shot the whole thing on video, edited it together, refined it again... And then because we were given basically a slot from 10 p.m. till 4 a.m. when there were no passengers going through, where they basically closed down one side security and let us use the other. It's actually the hardest night of shooting I've ever done.
4: What kind of lighting did you want? I mean, the lighting in airports and airplanes tends not to be very flattering.
7: Well, look, I think actually, particularly in modern airports, there is some beautiful atrium-style Lighting often you get these giant windows, and if you are there at the right time of day, uh, light will kind of cut across the entire airport, sending these giant shadows and you know beautiful colors that are coming off of the horizon. So, uh, and then other times you are in these dank fluorescent lit holes, um, and you feel like a prisoner. So, we wanted to create an arc over the course of the entire film, where at the beginning of the film, the world is beautiful and we are seeing Ryan's version of Airworld. The lighting is... um, uh, There's a lot of half-light, there's a lot of contrast, there's a lot of muted colors and tones. Uh, We used a lot of wide angles and moving camera. Even the extras were picked because they were kind of more fit and more attractive, and they were, you know, we we tailored their clothes better. Um, The production design, there was not a scuff on anything. Everything was shiny and perfect. And over the course of the film, the colors became warmer, and the shooting became more handheld and long lens, and the the film stock was grainier, and uh, even the extras were picked because they were sloppier.
4: You also have some great aerial shots of what you'd see from flying in a plane. How did you get those?
7: Well, you know, I wanted to see the world from two perspectives. One from 20,000 feet in the air, and the other when the world is two inches away from your face, and nothing really in between. So. The trick is to get footage from that high up. You know, normally when you see aerial footage in a film, it's done at 5,000 feet up, which is helicopter height. No one shoots from up in the sky the way you see outside a plane when you're up, actually up there. And I figured, you know, we'd just throw a plane up and point a camera down, and it'd be as simple as that, but it was a lot trickier, in fact. We tried once with a jet with a camera shooting down through a little glass dome, but the atmosphere was wrong, and... The film grain was wrong, and the optics weren't quite good enough, so we went back up with a propeller plane. But to get it that high, the pilots had to wear oxygen masks, and this time we put a digital camera out in the wing. And then if you can imagine this, the camera would only go down, let's say, 75 degrees. It wouldn't go down 90 degrees to point straight down. So to get it to go straight down, they would then put the plane into a dive, and that is how we got straight-down footage.
4: Um, people are really curious about like how product placement works in movies now. We're, we're like, you see a certain brand of a product, and what happens often is that that company has paid to have their product in the movie. Now, I know that uh, American Airlines has kind of partnered with you on the movie, and they let you use some of their facilities. Is that a product placement thing or something different?
7: Well, American Airlines actually gave us no money. What we did was uh, it was a bit of a trade that they gave us access to their gates and their check-in counters. They even flew in a 757 for us to fly on, uh, which is unheard of. When you shoot a plane in a movie, you're always on what's called a mock-up, which is a fuselage that's on a stage, and we were shooting on an actual plane half the time. And in trade, you know, Ryan exclusively flies American. I thought a lot about this because I'm as sensitive as anyone else is to product placement in a film. And I really did not want my film to come off as some sort of shill. But the truth is, Ryan's greatest friend on Earth is his airline. He knows American and Hertz and Hilton closer than he knows any individual person. Because I had the choice to actually make it fictitious. But if it was a fictitious named airline like Sunshine Airlines or something like this, all of a sudden the movie is a satire. It doesn't take place in the real world. And I wanted this film to be set in reality. Uh, and American ended up being this wonderful partner to us. Uh, I mean, one, they, you know, they flew us everywhere we shot. They gave us the chance to create a sense of reality.
4: The downside of them flying you everywhere is you probably got no miles for those flights.
7: <laughs> You're absolutely right. That's exactly <laughs> right. The frustration of getting free flights is you don't get miles. And one of the reasons I don't use my miles to travel is when you use your miles to travel, (laughs) you don't get miles.
4: (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Oh, boy.
0: Jason Reitman speaking to Terry Gross last year. He and all the other Best Director nominees will learn their Oscar fates when ABC televises the Academy Awards Sunday night.